Open the door and come on in. Cause this is where the fun begins. You don't have to be a penny or a dollar to step inside Gelato's parlor. This podcast can pass a test. And you'll enjoy my special guest. Take a seat and close the door. And join Mr. Red and find out more. So let's hear your holler. Welcome to Gelato's parlor. That's me. That was the Gelato's Parlor theme tune. I hope you liked it. It was written by yours truly, Ray Gelato, your host of Gelato's Parlor. Now, I'm very excited this week. Uh, We've got an incredibly special guest. Uh, I can only describe this man as a human dynamo. He's the most wonderful clarinet player and all-round fantastic jazz entertainer in the best sense of the word. Uh, His clarinet is absolutely wonderful. Uh, He's such an impressive musician. Uh, And he's done so many things. Uh, Headlined at Ronnie Scott's, played with Wynton. And Marsalis and the Lincoln Centre Jazz Orchestra, uh, major jazz festivals in the UK and around the world. Um, as I said, he really is a, a extraordinary musician. Uh, Mr. Adrian Cox also has a Facebook Live a Sunday service show that he's built up during lockdown with a loyal and growing fantastic following. Anyway, we speak about all sorts of things. We speak about the clarinet, the saxophone, music, our philosophy on music, and I present you the wonderful Mr. Adrian Cox. And here's a sample of what he can do with clarinet marmalade. Thank you. 
welcome to Gelato's Parlour. Um, I'm actually delighted to have this um, this fella on because he's a human dynamo and a ball of energy, as well as being an amazing musician and, and truthfully one of the greatest clarinet players I've, I've, I've heard and I've had the pleasure of working with him, although not as much as I'd like. I want to welcome on our Zoom podcast, Gelato's Parlour, on Zoom, Mr. Adrian Cox. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Ray. How are you, mate? Nice to see your face. I can see your face. It's good. I can see yours too. Yeah, I'm not bad. I mean, we've. It's lovely that we've kept in touch over this lockdown, and I've been watching with, um, you know, pride in a way of what you've been doing. You know, with your Sunday service and all those sort of things. And I was just saying how how, how much of a, you know, human dynamo you are with your energy. Just, just well, when we get started, how, how are you finding all this with your, you know, your energy levels and your motivation and whatever. Well, for me, uh, well, that's nice to say. I've been watch, I've been watching yours as well, Ray. Of course, coffee with Ray. Don't watch too closely. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen your fingers, mate. Um, no, but it's it. It was one of those things that as soon as the lockdown, the the thing for me was when lockdown started back in in March. I was due to have a holiday anyway. I was going off to New York for for three weeks. So I sort of took the first three weeks as just sort of chilled out a bit and just went, all right, I'll eat loads of takeaway and actually have a bit of a rest then it became apparent this was in for a while so then my brain just got into right because I always keep my brain's got millions of ideas going on all the time and it was actually a chance to start actually do it I had some time to actually do some of them and you know and you take an idea and run with it if it doesn't work you adapt you find new things and I'm I'm quite a positive I say quite a positive person I'm a very positive person so it's it, you know, I've, I've been through some stuff in my life with, you know, drink and drugs and stuff like that. And, and, you know, now being clean and sober, it means that my brain can actually, I'm mad anyway. I didn't need any of that stuff. You know what I mean? So, but now my brain's sort of channeled into, into doing loads of stuff. So actually I've found it, I, I, apart from all of the stuff that we know is bad of everything of death and, you know, people losing businesses and people, mental health and stuff. I, I, that is a, is a given that we know that that is very bad. But on the other side of that, I think it's given a lot of chance for people to excel in ways they didn't know. You know? Yeah, I've had to dig deeper. Well, you see, I can relate to you because we don't know each other hugely well, but we had a, a, a long chat last week on, online, you know, about stuff. And what, I'm, I'm a, what I find, you know, I have a lot in common with you is we, we're both high energy people yeah. and we have to keep doing things. And, we don't, I mean, I do bleat and moan, but I don't sit around bleating and moaning uh, with things like this because you've just got to put your shoulders to the wheel and get going. And uh, I noticed that in your music as well, because I was at the pleasure last year, just in the just before this lockdown started, we played in Tenerife. Um, I've never played with you. I'd, I'd heard you play, of course, and heard of you. And when I was beside you, but more listening to the sets you did out there on your own or with Rico when I was part of the audience, the, the thing that catches me is not not just the musical, the technique you have, and the, it's the spirit of jazz. And I'm sorry, but there's so many great players that, in my opinion, don't have that. What I call that energy, that energy that you have inside you, comes out when you play that clarinet, and it reaches it reaches a whole audience. And um, I, I, I'm just uh, just astounded by that. And I love to hear that in a young musician. It, it, it knocks me out, you know. Well, that's, I think that's, I had a clarinet teacher. I don't know if you if you ever knew him. He was a guy called Jumping Jack Gilbert, and he was um, he he played in a band called the Max Collie Rhythm Aces. I'll send you some of his stuff. It's incredible. Like his spirit of it. It's like please. Spirit is yeah. the word, and it, it, his technique's incredible. But 
his whole thing. And he taught me from, 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 I was 12 when I started lessons with him. He used to teach in the school and he'd come in and do an hour. But the trouble was the other four, um, the four people in the lessons, they wouldn't practice. So the next week we'd go back and they had got, am I allowed to swear, Ray? Yeah, yeah, sure. I can edit it out if it's too graphic anyway, right. but go ahead, uh, mate. Okay. Well, Do yourself. The others, the others couldn't give a fuck about practicing. <laughs> and, and what the difference was, I was coming home, getting up two hours before school, school to practice and coming home from school and practicing and going out doing gigs with my dad's band, doing this. You know, and he taught me from an eight, years and years ago. He's like a classic thing of saying, you know, when you're playing, it doesn't matter if there's one person there or a thousand people there. You, you've got to connect with them. That's the main thing is what you're doing. It's got to, you've got to be able to get across to those people. And if there's that one person who sat there looking miserable, try and make them feel good. Or if, if, the, if the mood needs to be, make them, take them to a place where they feel a bit miserable anyway, you know, and go, oh God, he must mean that, you know. And, and so that, that's something that's really stuck with me. And um, he, he was a great performer, a great entertainer, and people loved him. And, and not, just on a, not just on a musical side of thing, he made it very important. One thing he said was, when you get to a gig, make sure you go around and speak to everybody. He said, speak to everybody, who's, everybody in the room. And, and one of the things that he, which is great was he always says, if you start a conversation with someone in the room, like you've started a conversation with them, and, and, you, and then you're going to continue it with them in the break or at the end of the gig. He said, one, it means they won't go home because they've got to finish that conversation with you. He said, but two, you, you've started a conversation which you can continue in your music when you're playing as well. Yeah. And, and you've already made everyone feel comfortable. And that's, I think that's, that's something that you certainly do is, um, you know, you make everybody feel comfortable. And I, I think that's, that's as, just as important uh, as, you know, the music sometimes. Pe I see it at Ronnie's. People go to Ronnie's and they've never been to a jazz club or they've certainly not been to a jazz club where they're told, right, sit down and please don't talk. Or yeah. Be, no. And so if you can go in there and go, hey, everybody, how you doing? Lovely to see you. Is it, it's something very simple of just making everyone feel grounded and like, oh, okay, right, this is okay. We're all okay. Well, what you do is you've just said something interesting because, again, I, I feel you know, that, that, that musically, as well as, as well as the philosophy of, of the performance aspect of it, that you and I have so much in common because I like to look at it in the same way. That it ain't me. A lot of performers, it's them on the stage and it's the audience. To me, it's not that. To me, it's all of us in one big party together. I don't mean, you know, party, but it is. We're all part of it together. We're all part of this whole thing. And the talking to the audience is important. The meeting the people are important. And, uh, you know, I mean, I learned by watching people like Lionel Hampton. I saw him many times, Lionel Hampton. Oh, wow. And you're not going to get a better musician or Illinois Jacquette, a tenor player. Yeah. But these people knew how to put it across. They'd sing a couple of songs, you know, they do a couple of things like the birth of the blues or whatever. And then they'd play a burning solo and then they'd have the, you know, it, the whole thing was like a review. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just a gig. And um, I think that that's, um, it's a lost art, mate. And there's not a huge amount of us doing that. but um. It's just your, your uh, you, you know, you can certainly hear your practice, but you can hear that you've listened to a lot, a lot of great people. Like, you know, I was just reading that your, your favourite guys, Ed, what, what does Edmund Hall mean to you, the clarinet player Ed, Edmund Hall, you know, in a nutshell? So, so, yeah, so Edmund Hall, basically, he, for me, he's, I would have loved to have met him, um, is, 
is playing, he's got an incredible sound, right? He's just got a massive sound. And just, just to let you know, so I've just had somebody, it's so funny, I've just, I've just had a mouthpiece built for me. And I was trying to explain to the guy, I hope he doesn't watch this, listen to this podcast. That's one person I hope doesn't listen to it. <laughs> I'll make sure he does. Right, right. <laughs> but I said to him, I think you'd know him as well anyway. But I said to him, I said, right, here's the thing. I said, I play this mouthpiece. I play this. I said, I'm looking for something a, a, little, a little bit bigger than what I've got. There's not one on the market. I just need it a bit bigger and I need this. And then, and then this person came back to me and explained to me all the reasons why I shouldn't have that. And then told me who he thought had a big sound and thought this. And he was talking about Benny Goodman and, and people like that. Yeah. And I was saying, no, Benny Goodman has, has a sound and has this. Edmund Hall has a, a totally different level of sound. It's like a whole wall of, you know, and you can actually feel when he plays, you just, I, I totally relate to it. It's just giving it one, but not in that way of just being loud and brash. It's no, not sound, just honking, but playing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's clarinet playing. It's got yeah. it's so much that it like touches you. you. You listen to it and you go, yeah. And it, it's one of those things where you go, why don't other people play like that? Why you know, why has no one else gone, wow, that's amazing? Because everyone who hears it goes, oh, yeah. wow, oh, his playing's incredible. But, you know, he, he was with uh, Louis Armstrong All-Stars from 1955 to 1958, favourite band, you know, with Trummy Young and Lewis. Sure. The, the three of them together, I mean, you know, imagine turning up with a clarinet next to them two. You know, it's like, yeah. you've got to be able to give it one. But, yeah, but for me, I listen to him and I, I, I can never understand why why he wasn't a massive megastar, you know. But well, the trouble is, you see, that in jazz, certain players get, get uh, uh, um, the ones who are the popular ones. You know, you're talking about John Coltrane, Miles Davis, as one of these people like Sonny Rollins and Benny Goodman on clarinet, aren't you sure? And you've got a whole slew of players that have been forgotten in the annals of time. And I'm, I'm like you, I like to squirrel these guys out. People like Charlie Ventura and Jerry Jerome and saxophone players like Georgie Ald, Flip Phillips, that have forgotten. You know, they're not spoken about. And, what you just said about Edmund Hall, I understand, because certain players hit you right in the heart. And it's almost like, how can I put it? You want to emulate them, but you also need to get your own stuff. But what you said about that mouthpiece in Port, because, you know, I've always, as you know, loved that big sound, that big, yeah. wide open, what I call that Texas well, tenor well, sound. Well, to finish that story, the, yeah. the, Go. The, the guys made me a mouthpiece to what he thinks is a big sound. And, uh, to what would be yeah. a big sound. And it arrived yesterday and I put it on and I blew it. And I only had to pick it up to know it is never going to ever work. Yeah. And, and it's exactly what I said from the start. And now I'm having to send it back and getting him to make it to exactly what I asked at the yeah. start. You know, no, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a very, I mean, equipment, you know, you're, the sound in the end comes from, from you. But the yeah. equipment facilitates it. And I'm realising, I, I see so many players, I've played so many players' setups, I close them up. I'm like, yeah, what's yeah. that? To me, you've got to drive that thing, man. It's like an Aston Martin. They say the Aston Martin's a harder car to drive, but it's, it's such satisfying because a new car works for you. And I look at it, the equipment, same with me, what I use, it's a hard setup. You know, I use a big open mouthpiece and a reasonably stiff reed. But you like to feel you've worked for it. I feel I'm working like for that sound, yeah. You create the sound. And that's what I find with clarinet is people have... It, it, it was brilliant. I was at uh, Van Doren in, in France. It, in Paris and, and the guy, I, I took a mouthpiece to try and, and I said, oh, can, uh, can I have a three and a half read? And then he said, 
oh no you shouldn't use a three and a half read with this you you won't get any sound out of it i was just like right challenge accepted <laughs> and, then, and then i put it on and i blew it and he came through it's like oh you should be using a one and a half with this i'm like what are you talking about one no no half. no because i think a lot of these guys that we like you know they were using setups that had to get over bands with no microphone no yeah. amplification and they in the slightly old bass players with the big gut strings you had to make a goddamn noise and and you know also i noticed when you played in tenerife and and, and again we got similar i don't like to use a microphone if i can get away with it and yeah. you, you didn't and because you get that it's harder but you to me you play better ideas without that damn microphone sound coming back at you and you're driving the instrument to the back of the room driving well, the sound. I, I always think a thing with the microphone it, it, whenever i wherever I, play, I mean obviously i understand the fact that if you're playing in a big place, you have to have a microphone. I'm not, I'm not silly, you know. But, but the way I, the way I like it is to have a microphone that, generally, I say just set us up a vocal mic, at vocal level for me. And yeah. what I'll do is I'll play on that microphone for my clarinet, but I know exactly where to be. Yeah. And I want, you know, I want the clarinet to be picked up. So there's going to be a wall of sound. I'm making all the hand gestures, but no one can see that. But yeah. just to let you know, it's really good. Um. But there's, you know, you make a wall of sound and you just yeah. want something to just pick that wall of sound up. You're That's right. What, you know, close smoking for yeah. me, never, you know, and monitor engine, or, uh, <laughs> sound engineers who end up riding go. But I think when I did, this isn't a name dropping thing, but when I did the, um, when I did the Barbican, uh, the, the jazz at Lincoln Center. Yeah, I wanted to get onto that, but now you brought it up. That's really good. <laughs> but they, they, so, so uh, background, yeah, it was the Benny Goodman 80-year celebratory concert of the Carnegie Hall thing. And myself and Giacomo Smith were invited as to, to, to play the concert with Jazz at Lincoln Center, Winter Marsalis. Anyway, so, uh, uh, so when we got there, um, the guys, their sound engineer was like, okay, um, can, can you just come on stage uh, just to sound check? And I just blew two notes and he just came up. He's like, hey, man. He's like, you stay away from my microphones. He's like, he said, you don't need you. We don't need any microphone on him, nothing, which was great. And I've got some, some people took some recordings and, and you can, and it's not that I was, not that I'm blasting and just going, bah, 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 but it was like, it was saying the sound. And no, it's a, that, it's a sound that projects. It's, it, a sound that projects does not have to be a loud sound. It's a different no. thing. And big, a big sound doesn't have to be. I've heard players with deafening sounds that have a thin, weedy tone, yeah. but, it's, but it's loud. You see what I'm saying? It's a difference. Power, comes, power and thing comes from underneath. It's like, Absolutely. You, don't have to, you don't have to hear it. You just have to feel it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, maybe we're just loud bastards, me and you. Yeah, maybe <laughs> someone else is doing a podcast going, have you heard them too? <laughs> yeah, idiots. But, but you know, you know um, it's funny, because again, when, I, when I, played, I, I played the Blue Note New York with an American band, Gunter, our piano player, come out with me a few years. We've done it a few times. And we use a band based out of Philly. And uh, the sound man's done everybody from Tony Bennett to all the, all, you know, he's the regular guy there. And he was really grumpy at first, you know, that, what I call that sort of jazz attitude. And we're, and he, I'm not, you know, blind, but again, because I've always concentrated on sound and I've played something, I think a little few bars are flying home in the sound check. And he came up, even before we did the gig and said, man, he goes, you don't hear that tenor sound anymore. He goes, I'm not going to have to do anything with you on the microphone. Same, yeah, same thing. And he was really complimentary. And I thought, this is a guy that started off as a bit of a shit and like yeah, attitude. Yeah. And then just purely because he, he heard that sort of old, you know, that sort of Hawkins kind of old tone, 
He loved it. And he said, yeah, oh, he goes, he, he goes, as good as the players aren't coming here, they don't play that way anymore. You know, they don't yeah. play that. And it's lovely to hear, you know. It's a little thing that can make you feel good, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you, you know, and that's the thing, you know, you've got a lovely sound, Ray. It's always, it's, and the thing is, it's always consistent. That's what I like. It's not, it's not to, you know, some people can sound good in a good room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you sound, you sound, you've got that great sound. Whenever. Mate, I've got to sound, with, when I'm doing those coffee shows, I've got to sound good in my kitchen, which is the most acoustically horrible room. It's all tiles, so it echoes. And I've also learned another skill over this lockdown of actually playing so quietly, but still with the tuning and still with a good sound. And that was something, because I've always played in louder bands, it was something I never quite mastered. And I've realised playing that volume, that's what a lot of these guys were doing, like Ben Webster. Yeah. They were playing quietly with a full sound, and you get a different, um, you get a completely different colour out of that instrument. So I'm going to ask you, how did you, so after, because like, I I did a bit of that of like because um, my girlfriend get was getting up a bit later than me in the lock. I got into this crazy routine of getting up at six a.m. doing this and then starting practice doing like five hours practice starting at nine o'clock in the morning. So I had to play quietly. So I was yeah. playing really quiet. Um, and then suddenly I went and did my first live stream gig, like the first, yeah. uh, a, a, and, and when I came to play, like, and I blew, I, it, it was quite an amazing thing to do that first gig with, with other people, you know, it, yeah. I think it was July the 4th was the first gig that I did with some people, Joe Webb and all that. But then when I blew, I was like, oh, wow, my, my lips weren't ready for it actually blowing properly. Same. So I'd got this sound like yeah. down to... Same. Yeah, and it, I just wondered what it was like for you when you, because you, your first one was the 100 Club, it, wasn't it? Uh, exactly the same, exactly the same. The 100 Club wasn't so bad because it wasn't so far away from the beginning of the lockdown. But as time, the last live stream I did, which was with a small band with Elliot Henshaw and, um, and Gunter in Elliot's little studio just after Christmas, January, I found it a nightmare because the band were playing, it was a small studio and it was quite loud. And God's sake, when I was playing full volume, it, it just didn't sound right because I'd been used to playing this almost... Because, uh, again, I've got my kids studying here as well, so they're saying... Dah, yeah. dah, dah, dah. I'm playing... I'm even playing with a rag down my bell a lot of the time. And I'll tell you, even... Yeah, right. I, so, but when I try, Yeah, about halfway through that live stream, I felt my chops get sore. A little bit... Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you get that slight tuning and uncontrolled feeling. And I haven't had that, and that's, that's simply the same thing. Just... Uh, yeah, that's all from practice. That's all from... Obviously, it's something that we're so used to doing all the time. The gig muscle, Adrian. We're losing yeah, the gig. It. It's, it, I mentioned this on Simon Spillett's post. He put a post on Facebook, and we were, he was saying about the chops. And I said, listen, this is something that you're never hearing anywhere, really, but, but pro musicians know it. And the same with singing. The gig muscle is something that starts to go. So we've still got our chops, and we can still play. But yeah, yeah. When that, that, what I call that gig muscle is that real power that you only can develop you only can develop it playing with bands. You can't develop it practicing at home, you know? Yeah, you can't do it practicing at home because you can't, you can't, because, because sonically, you, you can't set that up at home. You know, you're always going to, no. playing solo, you're always going to hear, hear it all different. So, so check this. So I, this is, all right, mouthpiece talk, but I, I got a mouthpiece when we were in Tenerife. So I had that mouthpiece. That was a new mouthpiece I got. And I was like, wait, and then all through lockdown, I'd been playing on this mouthpiece going, wow, this is brilliant. This is great. I love it. I love it. And then the first gig I go out and do, I was, it was completely uncontrollable playing, you know, and that, that was the thing, like the gig muscle, as you're saying, yeah. you know, it wasn't ready for it. It was like, well, I've got, I've got a theory with mouthpieces because I'm, I'm a serial effer about, all right. And now 
I basically, again, this could be technical when we can talk like this. Hopefully we're not boring the audience, but I don't think we are because it's, it's important. But I've been a messer about... When I was in the Chevalier Brothers many years ago, I stayed with the same mouthpiece for seven or eight years and I was... I never thought about it. And it was absolutely yeah. beautiful. Never thought. Then I got in the routine for years. Then the last three years, I forced myself to stay on the same old Otto link that I've always played. Yeah. And I started to get the real control back. I wasn't thinking. Then over this lockdown, because I'm paranoid about my sound, I've started messing about again. And you do not know where you are. You're on one mouthpiece and you think, this is fantastic. It's from the 1940s. And I'm sounding like my heroes. And it, about a week, it sounds great. Then I say, I used to say this to Alex Garnett, the honeymoon period's over and it turns yeah, against yeah. you. It turns yeah. against you. It's funny, isn't it? You wake up one day and you go down, what's it? I have it, I have it the with The rabbit clarinets. hole. Yeah, I have it with clarinets. Like I get, and, but, and I start getting, my brain starts going, he says something wrong. And actually, generally, every time there has been something wrong with my clarinet, either it's cracked or it's, I crack a lot of instruments, you know, just through the sheer volume of playing and you know yeah doing 280 gigs a year you know and, and practicing all day long but um but yeah it's funny when you start changing gear and doing stuff because you I was saying to the guy who sorts all my stuff out I was like I didn't have this problem when I was I didn't have this problem when I was drinking I'll tell you that because I wasn't thinking about it I was just <laughs> getting pissed yeah so, oh, that'll be all right tomorrow fuck it <laughs> it, 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 it is that honey, but it's like a muscular thing because you think something is the new wonder. Oh yeah, this is great for like a, a, a and then it, that bizarre thing, the muscles and psychologically it turns against you. So I've forced myself now to say, go back on what was working for you for the three years. And everybody was saying the last three years, I was actually sounding better and more. I think my plan developed because I wasn't messing about. All that time with mouthpiece of reeds I was messing about with, I could have been learning a, a Don Bias solo or, yeah. or doing something. But the best players I ever heard, it's an important point, the worst players I ever heard of, of the greats, and I'm not mentioning names, were the ones that constantly and utterly messed about every time. I will say it. I love Sonny Rollins. He's one of my favourite players. I mean, that guy crystallised that whole Coleman-Hawkins thing, but brought it up to date with the bebop. Yeah, anyway... Yeah. But he's a serial messer about with mouthpieces. Every time you looked at the guy, he had a plastic with this one. And his chops went. Maybe yeah. his chops went for physical things. But th So the last few years, of, or, or, you know, 30 years, I can't stand Sonny's sound. I love what he plays, but it's been that. It's still a big sound, but it just sounds unfocused. When I saw, I mentioned it before, when I saw Illinois Jacket play, he had the same damn mouthpiece that he swapped with Dexter Gordon when he was with Lionel Hampton <laughs> in the early 40s. And he said that, he goes, I swapped it with Dex on the bandstand and, I've ne and he had the same mouthpiece and same horn and he sounded the same. When I say the same, I don't mean playing, the, you know, back what he's playing back Not then. Monotonous, yeah, but yeah. But the yeah. tone was consistently rich and gorgeous. Another guy was Sam Butera, Louis Prima's badly, the saxophone. I saw him in yeah, Vegas. Yeah. I went at another a peek at the saxophone and I saw the same mouthpiece I saw on the cover, this old Berg Larson with a white bit on it. And I said, Sam, I didn't know him. I said, is that the same mouthpiece you have with Louis? He goes, yeah, baby, said, and it's too damn late now to change. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he, like and all those guys that stuck to the similar equipment, they just seemed to sound consistent. And the, the mucker about us, and I've seen a lot of some of the greats. They seem to just lose something. Can't describe yeah, right. it. Don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you can get, it's like you say, down the rabbit hole of getting into gear and doing that. And I never was one of those, one of those people. I was just like, right, get the horn out, set it up. Probably left the reed on there for like three days. 
clean the mouthpiece out, immediately regret it. Yeah. So then you've got to start getting your sound again. Yeah, that's but, right. Because all, all the crud, like... You get... <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but I suppose over lockdown. But it's, it's great because I've learned loads of new techniques. I started to do... Um, I started having lessons reading music as well. Um, but my, a mate of mine was like, are you still not reading music? And I was like, no. And he's like, right, that's it. We're going to have lessons. And so I had lessons with him once a week for about 12, 14 weeks, something yeah. like that. And then at Christmas, I was lucky enough to do one of the uh, Guy Barker at his Christmas at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. And he was one of the sort of only six concerts that happened, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we did that. But, you know, I got sent the chart. And not that it, it Guy knows that I don't read. And he's yeah. like, well, you read enough, don't you? I'm, and I was going, oh, yeah, 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 you know. And then he, he, <laughs> he sends me a chart. And I'm like, oh, God. You and I are the and, same. Never the, read. This year. This year was better. I yeah. didn't feel phased by it. I yeah. got it. And of course, with Giacomo Smith, who can read, you know, great. I, I just had a day with him, sat down. I said, right, come on, Giacomo. Just tell me what's happening. And then he's going, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, you know what's happening there. Yeah. Look, it's obvious it's that. It's that. Yeah. And then you go, oh, yeah. And you put it all together. It, he said, and by the way, he said, when you play, he said, just start at the right point and finish at the right point. Yeah. You're fine. You got, I, 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 mate. Again, we've got a lot in common because I've always been a terrible reader. I, th I believe now, and I'm not making excuses. I've got some kind of dyslexia with music, on, on, on because when I look at it, it looks like a jumble. Like, uh, you know, normal kid, kids who have this with with the word. And I'm, I'm sure, but Pete Long did the same with me way back in the nineties. He says, "I want you in my Echoes of Elegant band." I said, "I don't read." He goes, "I don't care about that." He goes, "You got what the style I need." So he sent me all the charts. And I studied them along with the original Ellington records, the same as what you were saying, four, five, six hours a day to get it. And I got it. Yeah. You know, I got them down. But, yeah. and my reading got a lot better. Then he pulled new charts out. Uh, I was never at the, the level of Colin Skinner or Pete or anyone like that, but it got better. Now I can't read for shit. I've not done it. In fact, <laughs> if they pull a new chart out in the Giants, if we get, I'll always say, oh, Ollie will be. Ollie, I'll say, mate, play it for me once, will you? <laughs> he plays it once, I'm okay. <laughs> but um, It's funny that. I'm an awful, is... awful reader. I, I do, you know, when someone someone says to me about reading, they go, oh, yeah, but surely you must prefer it because, you know, uh, you know, I bet you're glad you did it this way round and not the other way round. And I suppose there's perks of, you know, there's obviously something in my playing that, that appeals because I haven't been a reader. But then saying that, I know people who read absolute fly shit and are absolute monstrous players. Garnet, there's no, you know. Yeah, so no rhyme or reason. No, there's no rhyme or reason. And, you know, I just... All I know is that if I get a gig, like, well, you know, Guy Barker's gig, you know, yeah. I'm, I've basically spent 10 days, 10 days learning those charts, right? And going over it, practicing every day, you know, six, seven hours a day. Whereas the, so basically, it's a massive time saver if you're able to... Read. Of course it is. I found the same thing. I wasted... But when I say I wasted the time with Pete's band, the Echoes of Ellick and Plong's band... I, I, I didn't because I got inside those charts, but the, there was times when he was pulling new things out in the early days where I'd just say to Ian Dixon, Ian, swap me your part and, and I'll, I'll please read it. And you know what? All those great guys like Peter Ripper, Ian Dixon, who was a wonderful tenor player, Colin Skinner, Jay Craig, they was Bob Hunt, they were amazing to me, absolutely amazing. They, they said, well, so what? They said, Johnny Hodges didn't read. A load of Ellington guys didn't. They said, they probably, you read better. He goes, but it's, it's what, you, it, what we said on that conversation the other day. It's the end result that matters. And if you yeah, get it down it. at the it's end, you... it's a bloody waste of time not reading. <laughs> hey, look, if it's, ta if it's taken me, you know, I've had to put in 35, 40 hours 
of learning to train. But then saying that, I often like do like doing the um the Barbican thing with with jazz at Lincoln Centre. It was hilarious just walking on the stage and then they said, "All right, um, do you want, right? Here's your music and music stand." And I was just like, "I just don't need it." And I I quite liked that. Yeah. I was like, oh no, don't worry about that. And it's like I've I've learned all the parts. It's fine. So, so yeah. you learned those parts in advance, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, well, the funny thing with that is I was on so I was on tour with Bad Manners in um we we were out in South America. So we we got a huge following in South America, and we've been out in. Fe- we were just about to fly out for a six week tour of South America and North America. And the day before we left, I got a phone call um, saying, are you free? Uh, it was from an agent. It was like, are you free on the 28th, 27th and 28th of February? And I was like, I'm on a South American tour. I said, Where, where's the gig? And I said, well, it's in London. I was like, right. Okay. Um, I said, what is it first? And they said, oh, well, it's, it's a good one. They said it's with Wynton Marsalis, Jazz at Lincoln Centre, Barbican. I was like, right, okay, yeah. I said, I'm going to do it. Um, and it turned out that we had, we had three days off with bad manners. Uh, right over this time. But four days off, we had this. Yeah. And, and so I finished a gig in, in uh, Guadalajara in the, on the Saturday night in, um, in Mexico. And then eight o'clock in the morning, I flew to Mexico City. Then flew from Mexico City to L.A., and then from LA straight to London, got picked up at Gatwick, Addison Lee, straight to the Barbican where it was snowing. I got out of the out of the taxi, which was right, we were like half an hour late. I walked straight into the Barbican Centre, sit down, and the, and they go, oh, um, uh, they're ready for you on stage. So I lit, done all of that travelling, and it was now three o'clock in the afternoon on the Monday. I I couldn't have done that. I don't know how you would have done that. My mind would have been toasted. Well, I just, and I opened up the clarinet case. And, and the funny thing was, it's all of, all of the Lincoln Center guys. And I'm wearing like baseball cap, white Doc Martin boots, like looking, looking like scruff bag. I think I had this, this jacket on. I was just like, all right, lads. And they're like, right, do you need a music stand? It's like, no, it's all right. Like, and I had like triple bags under the eyes. And we played, and we did the rehearsal and all that. And it, everything was, you know, it was really good. Brilliant. Loved it. And then, then the next night we did the concert. And then first thing the next morning, I flew straight back to straight back to New York and then straight to Guatemala and El Salvador. Oh, and then went back on tour with that. So I literally came off the tour for four days back to London. But but all the time I was on tour in Mexico, each day I was going through these charts and learning all this stuff, you know, and just Unbelievable story, mate. That the stamina. Just, just the last thing on that, and I want to get on when you mentioned bad manners, because we'll finish with a bad manners thing. Because I think after forty-five minutes, my Zoom thing might cut out because I ain't got the. But, but it's been so honestly incredible things. But just, how did you find Winter Marsalis himself? I'm just interested. You're done to say now, but uh, you know. So, so this is this is how did he treat you? Oh, fantastic! So I did the, I did, I played. Because on the, on the first day, I did three of the tunes that I was doing. We rehearsed them, did it fine. He didn't say anything at all, um, at, like, at, in the rehearsal. Um, he was chatting to the drummer, like, telling him what to do and how he wanted yeah. to play. And then I was just walking off the stage, and I just felt this, like, punch in the side of me. Like, gave me a punch in the arm. He was like, yeah, man, man, that's the shit. He's like, that's it. Your sound is huge. He's like, it's brilliant. And, what, and the best thing was, after all these years of playing that, the first thing he said, I can hear them all, all your instruments. He says, I can hear Edmund Hall. I can hear George yeah. Lewis. I can hear that. But he's like, I can hear you. 
He's what like, a beautiful thing to say. And, and that was it. And I was just like, and, and as soon as he said that, my whole, it, it made me feel really pleased. It's like, like, you know, I'm there doing, doing the thing I love playing clarinet and, and someone of his stature, you know, to come up and, and to pick out and, like oh, I can hear all the Edmund Halls, the George Lewis, you know, all the old New Orleans guys. He's like, that's the sound. You've got that massive sound. He said, you're filling up this whole room. Yeah. And he's like, you know, and it, and the, the, all the Lincoln Center guys are amazing. You know, they're, they're at, that band is ridiculous. And to play with it, it that thing of not loud, it's the power. Yeah. The, and you feel it. And all the brass section, were, when, when we went out and did it again in New York, you know, um, it, it was great. The, all, all the horn section, they were uh, uh, Walter Blandin and that. He was like, he says, have you been to the Van Doren studio yet? And I was like, no. He's like, you are, you, you, you've got an endorsement with them, haven't you? And I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, oh man, we need to hook you up, sort that out. You know, I'll, and then the next thing I'm around there, they're giving me free stuff. I'll come back to the UK. Then I became a Van Doren artist, you know, and it was like, it was so nice, you know, but so that my experience of that whole band and playing with them, you know, got, get to do it twice in a, in a year was amazing, you know, and, and I keep in contact with them and they, and they you know, Winton had said, if they, he said, we're on the road most of the time, so we don't get to see what's going on. He said, but he said, we'll help you however you want, whatever. He said, if you want to come and do a gig at Dizzy's, just let us know. Um, and, and so I did, you know, and I, I took the profoundly blue Edmund Hall concert. We went and did it out there in July, 2019. Yeah. We did two houses there. And, and even in lockdown, Dizzy's Jazz at Lincoln Centre got in touch with me and said, hey, would you like to present, would you like to do one of your Sunday services do, uh, via Dizzy's? I don't know if you know I did that, but... So I we don't, did a no. Yeah, I so don't. I did a live stream, me and Joe Webb, via Dizzy's Club in New York. You know, you know what, ain't that beautiful? And you know what, you know what, I, my, my theory, one, you're a, you're a great player, but it's what we went back, I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation, is if you develop a sound what I call a personal sound, but that just some beautiful, where, where, where you're looking at that sound as your first kind of port of call, people will love it. That's what Winton heard that sound. You know, I know the notes are important and all that, but it's that sound that people just love, that grab, grabs you. It's like Enrico, you know, when Enrico Tommaso plays, he's got that instantly recognizable sound that grabs people. And it's something that, that um, is not emphasized enough. It's no, not and emphasized I, th I think enough. what it is, is, is uh, I always say, I try to make, my music and, and my sound of what I do as accessible as possible. Yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, so, you know, I love it. I love people saying, I hate jazz, but I love what you do. It's brilliant. Yeah, I've heard that a million times, but you also, you also sing as well. So, so when I saw you, right, you did a couple, and the, again, you're not afraid to kind of put that side of, of your personality across. And, and, it, and, it, and it works, so it, it's just so bloody musical. And, and again, it makes the concert accessible. You know, I, I, just quickly, how do you feel about that? The, the vocal side of it, what you do? Well, see, I never see myself as a singer. I never go, oh yeah, when people go, oh, you're a singer. So no, I, what I do is, if I like a song, or I've got a song, I think, oh, that's a brilliant song. Oh, I'm going to sing that. that. That is as how far as it goes. I really want to sing it, because I think the words are brilliant, and it's a great song. So I'm going to sing it, because I love it. And, and I think that's... But, you know, I love it when people go, oh, I love your singing. It makes me laugh. But I piss myself. It's like, oh, I love your vocals. Go, <laughs> they say, they've said that to me for 35 years. And I'm not, I, I, as, I've said, as I've said to you, I'm not a singer. I'm a musician that sings, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the same, it's the same thing. In fact, most of my favourite singers 
have been the musicians. Wingy Manone, Roy Eldridge. Wingy Manone, yeah. Oh, it's 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 a killer. Just listen, because we again, we we um just in case we cut if we cut out, by the way, um, and I'll keep this in. I'll always I can reboot because and, and just yeah, finish yeah. off what was. But I just wanted to finish off because we've, we've said so many fantastically interesting things about your your musical career and the the accolades you the well deserved accolades and the online stuff. But finally, right, bad manners. One playing in the band, and two, you are their manager. How? Why? Where? <laughs> so my, my mate, my mate Tony Rico, he's he's been the he was with uh, Bad Manners. I think he joined him in the late nineties, um, and then he left them, and then he rejoined. And you know, big party animal band, as you know, because you you've done you used to do those university balls with them, didn't you? And stuff. Oh, I remember him being as mad as we. You know, we were crazy as well when they yeah. were mad. I think Dougie was madder than us. Yeah, I mean, bad manners, it really Marginally. Is what it says on the tin, you know. So he, um, so I joined, Tony Rico phoned me up and said, hey, mate, he's like, do you want to do some bad manners shows? Maybe, we, he said, I'm going to drink myself to death pretty soon. He's like, do you want to share the work? So I was like, yeah, all right. So uh, it, my first tour was of Russia. And I think I had like five bottles of, five litres of vodka in four days. You know, uh, incredible, you know. I came back, ended up in hospital. Great. Um, oh, great. So I, so I went on tour with him and I, I joined him. It was brilliant. And, and then it was the person who was managing him at the time just said, fuck this. And no, one can, no one's managed him for more than like a year at a time or a year and a half. And Doug said to me, he said, he goes, you're pretty good at, um, you're pretty good at managing yourself. Um, he said, how about, do you want to set up, do you want to manage bad manners? I was like, oh, fucking hell. He's like, yeah, but you like, you know. He said, oh, you get a percentage, you get this. And I was like, okay. Well, fuck it then. I'll book a tour, and I booked the Christmas tour in 2010, um, and then I've been his I've been his manager ever since, and set up all his set up all the tours all around the world: Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, North America, South America, Central America, Europe. Um, yeah, and and of course, big sort of six week tours in the UK, um, and yeah, and so so I you know, and basically, as Doug says as well. I said to him, I said about somebody once, I was like, oh, fucking hell, they can't sing. And he, he went, I've made a whole living out of not being able to sing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but people he, like it. Nah, <laughs> you know. They love him. You know, he's someone who, he wants everyone to be smiling. He wants, you know, and, and Bad Manners up until obviously the lockdown, you know, still doing 140 shows a year. Under, nice. And I don't do all of the shows now. I cherry pick, you know, I, I generally yeah. don't go and play in Scunthorpe, but I might go and do Buenos Aires, you know. But, but the amazing thing is you've just said, so you're going from win, playing with Wynton Marsalis and the greats, and even greats here like Giacomo Smith and your own thing, and we, you know, we've been for, to bad manners. How do you find the music? You, I, I bet you any money you enjoy it, yeah? Oh, yeah, I love it. And the thing is, it all, again, <laughs> comes from the same place. You know, when we're in the bandwagon on tour, you know, but we're listening to, like, Louis Prima, Louis Jordan, you know, and... and that's that's Doug's favourite thing is Louis Prima, you know. That's that's his. He loves it, and he knows all the words to everything. And actually, there's a little project that he wants to do, a little sideline thing where he wants to do a load of that Prima stuff, but as a little five piece. He's like with with me to put a little band together. Be fantastic. And he's like, I just want to do. He said, I just want to do it for me. But it's funny, you know, because he. He's really nervous about doing it. He's going, oh, but I'm fucking worried about that. I'm like, oh, fuck off, Doug. Come on, man. You know. Yeah, but he, he's a great guy. He's an entertainer. He has a hundred, you know, I learn a lot from him. He, he has a hundred percent of time uh, for everybody. He'll give everybody their time. You know, after a gig, 
he all he wants is 15 minutes of of not seeing anyone but then yeah. he will he will hang out with anyone people come in and they go oh Doug do you remember in 1987 after that gig we went and had this pint in the pub and we did that and do you remember and you were doing this trick with the you were opening beer bottles in your eye socket and he's like oh yeah I remember the pub down in here you know he ain't got a fucking clue but you know he makes you feel he makes, he makes all you feel, feel fucking special and and one thing he said was years ago when the Rainbow uh, Club in Finsbury Park, they, they, when they had done a big concert there and they finished and they were meant to get in a tour bus to go off, but there was like 2,000 people at the concert and he refused, the record company, I think it was Magnet or whatever, were, were trying to get him to get in the tour bus to go and he refused to go until he had signed everyone's record. You know, that's a beautiful thing when you hear that about an artist and you know what, when you just said you like to meet people, I, I, I'm the same, I'll sit there at Ronnie's in, in that foyer and I've got two, another set to, to go. I'm covered in sweat, I'm tired, I'm out of breath. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll make sure I sign everyone's album. Even before, once at a blue moon, I've gotten grumpy. And I'll tell you something just very quickly. This, this, isn't about, this is about you, it's not about me, but we're, 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 it's important as it ties in. I was in Umbria Jazz with my family. I've done it 12 times, Umbria Jazz. They kept asking us back and yeah. I did it, I did it uh, two years ago and I brought my family out. And we, they had us do it a lunchtime concert and then a late concert. And I was very tired. And I wanted to just spend a bit of time with my family having a drink afterwards because my son was 15 at the time and he was just yeah. starting to, you know. And I was stopped on the way back because the square was packed literally hundreds of times. Foto, hey, a foto. The Italians are very, very, um, <laughs> they're lovely, but they can be, they're a bit pushy, you know. And the last one, I said, no. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm with my family. I need to get back to the hotel, please. And I feel bad about it to this day. Isn't it yeah, funny? Yeah. And my daughter still says, Dad, you were real shit to them that night. And I say, no, I was. And I was just overtired. You know when you get overtired? And, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do, as the sort of person I am, I still feel that I would like to apologise to that couple or whoever they were and just say, I want to give you the fuck time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, well, it's a funny thing that I always, and I think it's so important. I've got a friend who did, he did a gig and I went to watch his gig and he was, a, he was on a downer. He was a bit on a downer that, that there wasn't many people there. That, you know, a place that holds 100 people and there was about 25 people. And afterwards, he just went, oh, mate, rubbish, you know, and, and just went off. And then the next day, he spoke to me and he was like, oh, what did you think of the gig then? I said, I'll tell you what. I said, the gig was fantastic. The music was great. You played brilliantly. I said, but afterwards, you should have, there, there was 25 people there. They were the people who did come to your gig. They had paid. They're, they'd made the effort. They're, yeah. They're, they are your fan base. They are the ones who came. You should chat to them. And 25 people isn't a lot. You go around and go, hey, thanks so much for coming tonight. Shame there isn't more people here, but really pleased you were able to make it. Uh, how did you find out? Did you, you, know, and I, you know, I think some people think that success has to be either lots of people or lots of money or lots of sales. Success. Success can be making one person really as happy as you're right. You know, someone come up to me and go, yeah. "That's that." You know, when you someone go, "That I was crying when you played that." Thank you so much. It's like, you know, of course, fucking hell, it wasn't that bad, was it? You know, but that, but you know, if someone's saying that, you know, yeah, um, it's incredible. You know, and I think in this lockdown thing, people have been able to comment more and send, you know, donations. People sending donations is ridiculous you know it's, yeah you really realize the positivity and the, the kindness you know yeah. we, we, we of 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 people in in this lockdown it's it's been incredible and uh that is another thing about success it ain't about the fame and that is keeping going 
It's yeah. keeping going and having that longevity and it's reaching people. You can reach the people yeah. and they like you and that you're doing something right. Yeah, that's it. That's when people, people have said to me, oh, you know, people who don't know me, they say, oh, what do you do for a living? I say, I play music, you know, I'm a musician. Oh, are you successful? I'm like, well, yeah, because yeah. I am. I play music for a living. Do you know what exactly. I mean? Yeah. I get to play music, my interpretation of something, and people like it enough that they give me money and I'm able to survive on that, which is brilliant. And that's the, and I think when it comes from that part, that, you know, when someone goes, oh, I'm going to do a lot, I've seen it in lockdown. Oh, God, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to do a live stream to make some money, right? Well, I'm afraid you're doing it right okay yes that helps and that but it's the wrong attitude it should be like hang on a minute i'm normally used to performing i'm going to do a performance you know and i'm going to put my paypal up if some people do donate to me that's brilliant but i feel because you'll feel richer for giving people you're right you're right it's more important than money money's money is a bastard i've got a friend who i do stuff at his studio and he makes it look beautiful and it's great and down at gun hill studios you know and and it's Fantastic. And when I, he's an old mate of mine, Rupert, funnily enough, who used to play, he plays trumpet, um, but he played with Bad Manners. And also he used to play with Jack Gilbert, my trumpet, wow. uh, my clarinet teacher. So we have this connection of like how you should be. So, um, and, he, and I go, how much money do you need, Rupert? He's like, oh, I hate the money bit. Like, just turn away, turn back and tell me how much you're going to give me. And then it's like, all right, I'm going to give you 200 pounds. Is that all right? Yeah, that's brilliant. Great. Yeah. Right. You know, and so it's, but, but I think there's been lots of, lots of, although, you know, and talking to you is good. Cause I know the other day you said, oh, I'm struggling. You said, you said, I'm struggling a little bit on this. And within about 30 seconds of talking, it was like, oh no, actually. And it just turns around and it can just take having a conversation yeah. with someone. It can and but positivity, but mate, um, I don't want the audio to, to go off no, on this in case not, it goes. Not. But I'll tell you what, you've been the most you've been the most interesting guest. And and I'm not just saying this, but and I don't often, you know, like to blow smoke or accolades, but you're you're an incredibly inspiring person, even more after hearing your your stories of the energy. And listen, mate, keep going. And I'll tell I you what, we've got mate. so many, we got so many other things to say. We're gonna have to do a part two in this, Adrian. Yeah, definitely. Let's it's gonna be a lovely one. Yeah, and mate. I love it. And listen, that was Mr. Adrian Cox. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers, you. Ray. Nice one, mate. See you next time. Keep well, keep safe, keep lucky. Bye-bye. Nice one. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye.